Today's episode comes not from Silicon Valley, but from Kenya. Population, 55 million, the seventh most populous in Africa. The capital, Nairobi. Languages, well, officially Swahili and English, but there are over 42 tribes in Kenya, each speaking their own indigenous language. Main exports, coffee, tea, spices, flowers, and textiles. And fun fact, the most recent gold medalist in both the men's and women's marathons of the 2016 and 2020 Olympics, Kenyan. New York Marathon, Boston Marathon, London Marathon, Tokyo Marathon, you name it. It seems every year, no matter the city, it's a Kenyan runner bringing home first place. And that's because, well, Kenyans are really, really good long-distance runners. And as we'll hear in this episode, it's because, yes, the high altitudes, but also because running is such a big part of the Kenyan social fabric. Running means something to do. It means employment. And it means, for some, escape. And because of all this, we've seen some of the best runners on the planet come from Kenya. But the running shoes on their feet? Nike, Adidas, New Balance from Kenya? Not so much. Which begs the question, if the world's greatest runners come from Kenya, shouldn't the world's greatest running shoes come from Kenya too? Well, to answer succinctly, there hasn't really ever been a Kenyan running shoe to compete with these big names. Until now. Meet Enda, which launched on Kickstarter in 2016 as a made-in-Kenya running shoe. And Enda in Swahili, it means go. And in the past three years since 2019, it's been go all right. No, better. It's been run for founder Navalayo Osembo Ombati and Enda, seeing three-digit growth and massive headlines ever since. But to get here, to a point where Nava and Enda aren't just making an awesome running shoe, but instead making Kenya proud, it hasn't been easy. It's been, for lack of a better phrase, a grueling marathon. I'm David Zabinski. And I'm Navalayo Osembo Ombati. And this is not from Silicon Valley. Nava, Jumbo, welcome to the show. You know, I was in Nairobi in, what was it, 2016, and absolutely fell in love with the place. So with that in mind, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about where in Kenya you grew up. Um, I grew up in Kenya, in between Nairobi and Western Kenya. And so usually you go to school the way it is in Kenyan setting. If you're studying in the city, when the holidays come, you kind of go to the village. So I grew up in between that. Um, and I grew up in, a, when we were in Nairobi, my dad was in the military. And so we grew up in a barracks. And then when we were in the village, we were village kids, you know. And so I kind of grew up in between those two environments. You know, I, I hear Nairobi, this massive East African capital city in military barracks. And then I hear you say small village. I mean, that's a contrast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about that, about the, the dichotomy between your two childhoods? There's the similarities in the sense of, you see, now that I have, you know, like 20, like I can look at the past. I can say the similarities in terms of exposure to sports. Uh, the, the military is one of the few employers in Kenya that employs people strictly for their category, including sports people, which is why you see a lot of runners are in the military or the police or something like that. And so. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? That the military employs people based on their category? Like basically they hire you to, to be, to practice your trade. So they'll hire doctors, they need doctors, they'll hire athletes, and your job is to be an athlete, you know? That's awesome. It is. That's why a lot of runners try to get into the disciplined forces, um, because other employers will not give you time off to go run, will not understand that your schedule is very different from anything else. But the military allows you to kind of have a job, but also practice your trade. So I guess it's like being in the reserves in the U.S. Yeah. All right, and so let's assume you are a runner. What, you'd serve part-time in the military and part-time running for the military? You're, so they have their own team. So you can, you kind of still have like your rank and your role, but you, um, you're part of the team and that's respected as a, as a thing that you do. You go for training, you go for races, you go, like nobody comes and tells you, oh, you have this work, you need to finish, like that's your work. So that's 
one of the things that was really important. Now that I look back, there was a lot of exposure to people in sports because they had teams for all types of games. Games? Like between different military branches? Yes. For the people, for the athletes that are hired. They actually do have their own military games and they have, like, it's a, it's a whole ecosystem outside the public ecosystem. But it, it's very sport-oriented. Really cool. All right, so we digress, but Nava, back to you. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Tell me about village life. Uh, village life was just village life, you know, like there's a, there's a river, there's um, people kind of like farmers. It's mostly a farming village. Um, there are people who, we also kind of grew up, Eldoret was like the main center of where we are. Eldoret is also known as the home of champions, city of champions actually, home of champions is ten. And so we also, it's a town that has also been built by athletes. Like a lot of the buildings have been built by the race winnings of previous athletes. And it's a place where if you're on the outskirts, you basically see people running in the morning, in the evening. Like it, it's that thing that's kind of like in your background, but you don't realize how it, it impacts you until later. Um, so that was village life. Village life was good. It was easy i think we got to be kids we climbed a lot of trees we played in the river we, we had a really epic childhood i can't complain for sure it was it was really good and schooling so schooling was mostly in nairobi uh for a variety of reasons back then um i was in the public system and the public system in the city was much better than that and then also the military had its own like school and so my dad thought it was better to kind of like have a study there instead of the village, which again was a really good decision. Um, and so schooling in Nairobi after schooling in the village. Yeah. Okay. So school in Nairobi versus school in your village. Another dichotomy I'd love to hear more about, Nava. What was schooling like in your village? Um, I'd say the biggest difference is that they start teaching you English or Swahili when you're about 10. So before 10 and below, and this is in my days, and they might have changed it now they would teach you in your native language. So we have 42 languages in Kenya. So depending on where you are, you kind of like grew up in that language. And then when you're 10, you switch up to English and Swahili. It's had its advantages and disadvantages, but I'd say chief disadvantage was that the main exam was in English and Swahili. And so you had the kids in the city starting that pretty early and the kids in the village starting that. But then now growing up, they know the language and the kids in the city are tra struggling to know the language now that we are older. So it was kind of like a balance. And then uh, unfortunately, also, there was not many resources in the village. So you'd find like a school is a structure but has no windows like you do have the opening for the window but there's like no windows like the teachers uh, were not well paid enough or were not like the great teacher so there was a quality um you know disparity in terms of the education that was got given there vis-a-vis -vis the education that for example i received uh in the city all right so you've got this really nice balance of experiences in a city and a more rural area how about university I did law. I studied law and always wanted to be a lawyer. Too much of law and order, Ali McDill, the American export. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, I think I, I just felt like I wanted to make a difference, like help people navigate the legal system, you know, like good versus bad. And so I was very clear that I wanted to study law. Uh, and so that's what I worked hard for. That's what I got in for. That's what I studied. And what, that was in Kenya? Yeah. So my undergrad, I did uh, in Kenya. And then post-grad, I moved to London. I got a scholarship at the London School of Economics. And so that's where I did. But after kind of like working in, the, I worked for about four years before I did my post-grad. Yeah. Doing what? I worked, most of it was spent at Deloitte, uh, Deloitte East Africa. So when I was waiting to enter uni, I decided to enroll in an accounting course. So I became a certified public accountant way before I became a lawyer. And so um kind of took my CV to Deloitte of like, well, I'm interested in working here. Uh, so I got an internship pretty much uh, in my second year of uni. And I did the internship throughout uni until when I finished. And so it was this natural transition when I finished. They're like, hey, you want a job? I was like, of course, you know. And so I worked at Deloitte for, for some time. I left because I feel like I had been there since my university second year, then third year, fourth year, then I graduated and I stayed four more years. So it was time to leave. <laughs> and then I, I went into another private sector. Um, I did, I did a little stint at a social enterprise that was a bit shocking. 
um, just the, the pace of it. And then I went to um, a Pan-African organization for like about a year before I decided to go for my master's. Shocking. That's an interesting word you used to describe that social enterprise you worked with. Can you tell me more? It was a very fast-growing social enterprise. They just got in a bunch of money and they were scaling at unprecedented levels. But it was shocking because I came from a system that had so much structure to a system that had no structure. And so they were growth at all costs, and which I like that was a warning to me in terms of this is how you waste resources. Uh, when you pursue uh, growth at all costs and you do not have the systems, basically you should always make sure that the, bis- the, the business systems are in line or ahead of the company growth. In this case, it wasn't. And so there was a lot of fraud. There was a lot of waste, mismanagement. And I think coming from a place where you, you're very prudent with the resources that you have, the fact that um, these founders were okay with losing that much money, I was like, this is insane. Like that you counter that loss as part of growth. Um, I think that was my first shocking, um, you know, exposure to to the growth and scale model at all costs. What, Nava, you, you mean growing and scaling at all costs and spending millions of VC cash without generating any revenue isn't sustainable? That's Silicon Valley 101. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess it was also shocking because that was my first exposure to that American way of building things. Like it's more of the scaling was more important than the, <laughs> yeah, it was just scaling at all costs and I thought that was insane. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. Nava, can I ask, the the company you were with, what was their focus? Tech? Their focus was on education. I don't want to give that much info unless someone can find them. Of course, I'm sure someone can find them. But their focus was on education. And I think it was just more of scaling that model as quickly as possible. And seeing it from inside, I felt like it was, um, it was like working on stills and the stills are on fire. And everybody's just running and saying, oh, my God, you're doing amazing. And I'm like, but you're on fire, you know. <laughs> so that, that it was it was a rude shock. Like, yeah, that was, yeah, very difficult to see when you've come from a very focused and orderly environment. Walking on stilts, but the stilts are on fire. Now, but that, that definitely just became my favorite phrase. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Hopefully no one will do that. It is absolutely insane. All right. So after the stilts experience, you what? You study at London School of Economics, yeah? Yes. Coming from Kenya, I mean, that must have been an experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. Like, that was my first proper experience outside Africa. I'd been uh, mostly in Eastern Africa. And so LSE was different, uh, fast in the sense of it is a great institution. Like, it just blew me away um, as an academic geek. Like, it was like, you know, and then there was also the, um, I think there, I, I found a disconnect between, because I studied development. And so I found a disconnect between, um, what was taught and what I had experienced. Like, I wouldn't say I grew up rich, but I also wouldn't say I grew up miserable. And so I felt like there was a disconnect between describing poverty and living through it. Like, I wasn't poor, poor, but I was also like, it wasn't, life wasn't the way you guys are describing it, you know, <laughs> like it wasn't like that. And then I also remember um, a unit I took and there was this huge discussion about Africa with the Chinese going like, yeah, but you guys from the West, like took everything and now it's our turn and you can't tell us anything. And the, uh, I'll call the American and the Europeans kind of going like, yeah, but you guys are not even caring about the human rights thing and stuff like that. And I was like, hello, <laughs> like, why is everybody talking about this from a perspective of ownership, of entitlement of Africa, you know? And so I just felt like um, we kind of need as Africans to get our act together, first of all. And secondly, I think we also need to to stand by ourselves so that we are on equal footing and nobody's kind of like tossing us around like a ball and that, yeah, yeah, you guys did this or you guys did that. It just felt very surreal being in that discussion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know where to start. 
I guess on your first memory, Nava, uh, about your classmates' interpretations of poverty, I mean, I find it strange how oftentimes some Westerners, I don't know, they, they like fetishize poverty in Africa, almost as this means to deliberately sensationalize it. It's a bit off-putting. And, and the second point about this fight between East versus West on who can extract more resources in Africa or colonize more countries in Africa or set up more factories in Africa. I mean, man. Yeah, it was insane. And I was really worried about the state of development because <laughs> I'm like, wait, you guys are going to be the ones who are going to, you know, like practice development. And all of you guys want to go to Africa. Like most of the students wanted to go to Africa. And so I kept thinking, like, how do we change the minds of people if the people who are already coming to work in Africa have that mentality? You know, like, how do you change that? I don't have an answer for that yet. But it did give me motivation to be like, okay, let's, let me go back home. Let me figure out what I can do. But something that is nice and proud and something that actually, you know, shows the pride uh, of home. So what, what would that be? Uh, the first thing I did was start a tennis academy. The, the backstory of this is when I was in London, I got to experience the Wimbledon uh, fever, if I would call it that. And it really blew me away because tennis is amazing. I love Serena and Venus Williams. Like I love, I love them absolutely. And um, when I went there, I realized that there was no, basically, there was no African playing in the matches. Like there was no African representation at all. And so, of course, I asked myself, why is this? And why is it that, like, what are the barriers to entry that make people not enter tennis? So at that particular point, my mind was very much focused on tennis because I liked it and I got to experience it. And I was like, I want to change this. So I came back home uh, with the idea of starting a tennis academy and grow, like, give a chance for tennis prodigies to, to develop. And hopefully we can change the scene. 10, 15 years from now, we can have, like, some really good players coming from Africa. So that was the big vision which is what I came with when I came back from LFE. I went to the village again, established it, because I thought we want to give the people who wouldn't ordinarily have those opportunities. And people in the village are also, by virtue of their way of life, they're very strong and muscular. And so I was like, we could totally do this. So when I came back, that was the first thing I did. I set up the academy. We ran it for two years. It didn't work out for very obvious reasons now that I have hindsight, but back then, yeah, so we'll get to that. But I'm curious now, but why is it that tennis has never really taken off in Africa? I'd say tennis is a high-cost entry sport. So the rackets, you need money for that. It's not like a football where you can just put polythene bags together and you have a ball, or running where you can just get on track. Uh, tennis needs, the, you know, like a proper court, a proper coach. There are like certain rules you need to adhere to. Um, all those things just make the... You need a professional to teach you, and there's no professional who sees value going to the village. Um, there's that. And then for the ones who are able to do it, it's usually upper, upper middle class families. And even though, even in that particular instance, they would encourage their kids to do tennis as a sport towards academia, like going to a nice university and showing you have sports or something like that. So it wasn't, it's, I think that people who would break into it are still having a high, a difficult time either understanding the game uh, or getting the equipment needed for the game. Can I ask you a dumb question? Why do you keep going? Uh, a bit of optimism, optimism and foolishness in Nicole Meza. I think I, you know, like the high cost of tennis, I didn't really think through the project. I was more driven by my heart than the, the economics of it. And then I put it in a place where uh, the population was not able to pay for the services. So I ended up uh, paying out of pocket for, basically I was supporting the school, everything from paying the teachers to paying the coach and the students and everything. And that wasn't sustainable because you are investing in a 10 or 15 year journey and you need um, other partners or sponsors to be able to support that journey. And then the location of it was also wrong. I put it deep in the village. It was about an eight-hour drive from the city. And so getting there was difficult. And even the coaches that I got, most of the coaches are focused, they're like they're located in the in Nairobi. So getting them to go there was like a hard task. Like they wanted more compensation. 
and it was a tough journey for them. They needed to be back their regular jobs on Monday. And then that particular time, I also got a job in New York. And so the eight hour difference, time difference with the village, and sometimes there's no electricity, so you can't even get through to ask about how things are going. Like it was a total disaster, <laughs> quite honestly. You, you had this recipe for disaster, no, Nava? I mean, no product market fit in a nascent market to begin with. Whilst you're a 14-hour flight away, <laughs> you almost didn't give yourself a chance. Mm, no, but you know, I'm always a determined person. And I was like, I just need the right team and this will work out. So I pushed it on for quite a bit. But eventually, I realized what we had promised the parents and the kids was not what we were delivering. And I was actually being unfair to the kids if I am not giving them the chance of them becoming the the protégé that I had envisioned for them and I am not giving them the resources required. Um, I thought that was a bit unfair. No, quite unfair, not a bit. And so it was mostly the looking at the future of the children and I said, uh, let them just go back to like the ordinary school, the one that was just focusing on purely education. I think they have a better chance than what I was trying to offer, and I myself wasn't sure if you were going to deliver under those circumstances. Well said. And the hardest part, acknowledging this failure, ripping off the Band-Aid, moving on? Uh, moving on was difficult, I have to say. And so because I had let down so many people, I, I carried it in my hand because I had sold these people a dream and a vision. And then I was the one saying, oh, okay, it's not going to work out. So that hurt quite a little bit. And I was like, okay, I don't want to, I want to do something still. Like, let me not just take this project, product, project and shelf it. And how about for those that invested in you? I didn't raise the money. That's also I'm saying a bit of foolish inside. It was all out of pocket. <laughs> I was taking my salary and sending it all back to pay all this amount of expenses. It was crazy. And sending money from New York? What were you doing there? I was working for the United Nations, um, yeah, at the headquarters. Wow. All right. So, you know, UN, LSE, you've got this really impressive professional educational background. You've likely gotten a taste of this entrepreneurial bug. After you moved on from the tennis academy, what was next? So I, I actually, before I moved to New York, um, there was a business accelerator program in Nairobi. And so I figured it doesn't have to go there uh, because they had like all the business experts. Um, and I wanted people with experience to tell me how to make this tennis thing work. And so I signed up, uh, I got accepted for it, went, it was a two week residential program. And I still remember their faces and I was like, well, here's my tennis project, here's what I want to do. And of course, this is much later, they are telling me, they're like, why tennis? Like, you know, you want to make an impact, but tennis is the most elitist sport. And I was seeing that and they were not seeing that. But I got to have a chance to sit down with um, really good guys and go through the theory of change. What do I want to do? What's the what's the intended benefit? Like, they gave me, the I'd say, one of the two best weeks of my life in the sense of I got to think about the business through and through. And I think by the end of like the second day, I was like, yeah, tennis is not, it, it's not going to work out. And so they're like, okay, so let's figure out the next step. If you still want to, to be in sports, what's the next thing that kind of like makes sense? And so through elimination and through thinking, um, running became like something that was easy. And of course, once, once it's like, of course it's running. It just became so obvious, but before it wasn't. Uh, but again, running, um, as I said, tennis was a, High cost entry running is a low cost entry. Uh, tennis doesn't have the systems to support it locally. Like there is a national association, but it's not the same as athletics where uh, Kenya has really developed the infrastructure for it. Yeah. So I, I want to start with a question that's probably on the minds of lots of listeners right now, especially in the West. And I know I'll sound ignorant. I know I'm stereotyping. Uh, here goes nothing. Why is it, Nava, that Kenyans are, are just so good at long distance running? Um, I'd say it's a combination of different things. Of course, the, the altitude makes a difference, but I mean, also the Ethiopians have that and the Rift Valley runs through a bunch of other African countries, but the high altitude definitely contributes, especially if you're born there, you have like a better lung capacity than, than the ordinary person just because you're used to very thin air. 
but I also now that I know the athletes, I know they are so consistent with their work. Like one of the things I always say is people nowadays, especially recreational running is very much on the rise, but for most of these athletes, that's their job. Like that's that's what they do to feed their families and make savings and live for their future pension. And so they don't joke around with running. It's very, very, very intense. And then, of course, I, I do believe also Kenyan runners are really good because that infrastructure exists. If you kind of grow up in a place that has champions, I think you have a much higher chance of being a champion because you you see you see it, you live with them, you stay with them, you learn the tricks of the trade. So I'd say the fact that that tradition has been there, it's been easy to pass down whatever I would call the tricks of the trade or whatever to to the next generation. I I do think environment matters quite a bit. And for the kids who grew up around this area and they see how other athletes are successful and they see the training regiment of the athletes, they also train in that same way. And so it's easier that, um, uh, you know, like a champion begets a champion. Okay. So running is a huge part of the Kenyan social fabric. You realize that. Now, how would you marry that with business? That was actually the first question. And so when I was at this accelerator program, that's where I met my co-founder. He was one of the people in the audience. And I was talking about my idea because you kind of had to pitch and talk about your idea at the end. And we basically had a really good conversation. And the question you asked Richard and he said, you know what? If you're in the running business, there's tons of ways to tap into that economy. You can make apparel, you can get into nutrition, or you could get into running shoes. And I think at that particular moment, it was so obvious that running shoes are the main tool of the trade. And we're like, we're going to make running shoes. And that's how we decided to create a, a running shoe company. We met uh, a couple of times before I left for New York. Um, and I think the more we met, the more this, this more solid the plan became. And the more we're like, okay, let's, let's try to do this. And that's how we started off. And why shoes? Why not like headbands or socks or t-shirts? Uh, because running shoes are, as you say, it's like the one thing you notice on an athlete, uh, automatically running shoes are the tools of that are like the main tool in running. And if we are making them, uh, in conjunction and in consultation with the people who use them the most, it just made sense that you have the best runners in Kenya. Why not use them to create the best running shoe? And when you decided this, what were the best runners in the world, Kenyans, wearing on their feet? Nike, Adidas, Puma? We did a really um, extensive consultation in terms of what people wear, why they wear it and stuff like that. But of course, you have to consider that these other companies have been around for years, you know, and they're not only at the level of manufacturing, they're also the level of sponsoring athletes. So, of course, the athletes are wearing that. But of course, they were also like, yeah, we need a shoe from Kenya. Why haven't it, why hasn't it been done before? So I feel like, yes, they, they are wearing it, but yes, they also recognize that there has to be more done to tap into the running economy so that we are not just putting the burden on the athletes. We are actually creating an industry that allows more people to benefit from Kenya's reputation in running. So to create this Kenyan running shoe, Nava, how'd you start? Uh, how we started was mostly, we had to find someone who makes shoes because neither of us had, uh, the experience or the expertise to make shoes. And the first thing we did was to ask our networks and to also do a lot of, um, searches on LinkedIn. And we always had one ask, who should we talk to? Like we talk to someone and we ask them which other two or three people should we talk to? So that opened us up to a lot of people. Uh, some were interested, some were not, some were like, this is amazing, but it eventually led us to people who would help us to make the shoe. So we made it, we had the prototype, and then now we kind of had to start looking for the funding to, you know, bring the prototype to life and kind of like go into commercialization. And financing that first production, what was raising money like? It was a very frustrating process, to be honest, because everybody said no. <laughs> everybody said no. Why was that? What were investors saying? It was more of why, why do you want to create something new in the sense of these people don't want you to experiment with their money, especially if it's something that involves fixed assets, if it's something that is experimental, because we are saying we can make running shoes in Kenya. And they're like, well, does the capacity exist? You know, like, 
like and i also feel like at that particular point we only had a prototype we started looking for money before the prototype and so it felt to people that it was this crazy dream that um you know like a nice nice and cute but difficult to implement that was my take from it um uh, but i think it was i do i do remember feeling it was a bit unfair I'm like other people have raised tons of money without having a product what's so different from us but i think um being in kenya was a bit different um the environment and also a lot of the investors are not based in kenya so getting them to understand kenya live alone africa was a little bit difficult and then for the investors here the traditional institutions the banks don't ordinarily lend money to SMEs and especially startups like just forget it like <laughs> no way <laughs> And so it just, now we're like, either we get angels or we have to find some other way to raise money, which is how we ended up, um, we ended up, uh, crowdfunding for the first product. And also the second product, we did a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. Kickstarter. Yes. We did Kickstarter just because it's a very specific platform for businesses. And we felt like we would find kindred spirits in the sense of people who would see the value of a Kenyan running shoe existing. So a US-focused crowdfund, I imagine. Kickstarter is basically mostly global, but the audience is American and European. So it was more of a pre-sale, basically saying, here's the prototype, here's what we want to do. If you buy in advance, you get a, a hefty discount of the actual product, like of the market price. Uh, but all you have to do is invest in us in advance and give us some time to make this product and we'll be also fast to have it. How much did you raise? We raised in total for the first one, $140,000 and for the second one, $100,000. Essentially enough to get us started. Yeah, okay. I mean, almost a quarter of a million bucks. So how many pairs of shoes did that finance? Uh, we couldn't make much, right? Because one of the things that uh, go into shoemaking is the making of molds. So the molds are the heavy metal steel or something that they use to create the midsole of the shoe and uh those things are pretty expensive i think pass for like a size goes from like three thousand four thousand dollars you're doing men's and women's you're doing half sizes up so a lot of the money got um sunk into that and uh, uh, we basically had enough to fulfill the Kickstarter orders and have just a few for returns and exchanges. Not a smart idea, but it was what we had at the time. Okay, and why were folks buying Vienda shoe at the beginning? I mean, that is, Nava, how did you market the shoe? What what were the USPs? Um, different things, I'd say, based on the audiences. But the key thing is that, first of all, we always say it's like, a, it's a great technical shoe. From a running perspective, like absolute confidence in it. And then there's the added benefit of it being a made in Kenya shoe. And then there's also the added benefit of um, us being a certified B Corp and a climate neutral company. A certified what? Climate neutral. We basically measure and offset our carbon footprint. How'd you do that? It's, it's more of uh, looking at your carbon footprint. How much money are you spending on travel? Uh, how much distance is it? Like what's the emission? And then, um, basically offsetting it through, we do, uh, pay climate neutral some money. And that money basically goes into reforestation and other projects that are making the world better. Got it. Yeah. No, I mean, there'd be lots of reasons to be interested in the crowdfund, right? Made in Kenya, carbon neutral, a technical shoe, which I also want to talk a bit about. No, but this was when? 2000 and? 2016. Although we got the shoes uh, delivered in 2017, August. It was a hell of a year. Okay. So by 2017, you sold some shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you've had these wildly educational lessons on scaling from the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So how do you start to scale in 2017? Um, different ways. So first of all, we are also focused on growing our B2B part of the business. And I think uh, for a lot of the feedback we're getting from retailers was like, you can't be a one-shoe company. It's kind of like being like a one-hit wonder. You have to uh, go to the next level. So there was expansion from a product category. And also we needed to be able to sink more money into R&D and increasing the quantities of production that we had. So we went out actually to look for angel investors to get uh, 
additional funding to enable us to do that and also at least hire one or two people to help us because initially it was just uh the two founders doing everything so how'd that search for more capital go initially i think we raised like about 325k mm, yeah just been a while back but yeah that must have been about that cash that much american angels european kenyan uh mixture uh, a mixture, I'd say. Uh, I, I'd say we do have Americans, but they're not majority. We have uh, multinational investors, like from all over. Nice. Okay. And and with the fresh capital, how twenty seventeen go for you guys? So in twenty seventeen, we basically got the money, started investing in the next uh, products that we wanted to start into the from design to. To products being ready is a long process. Sometimes it takes like nine to 12 months. Sometimes can even go a little bit higher. So that's what we focused on. We also got additional help, people to help us with customer service, to help uh, organize the logistics a little bit more. Um, and then we also now started looking at, okay, let's focus on our marketing and, and how to make it better now that we kind of have some headspace for it. So that's what we did. And uh, we also, we basically just started making the next shoe. Yeah. So the shoe, uh, Nava, I want to hear more about the Enda shoe. Now, I am not a runner. Okay. <laughs> Assume you're talking to someone who hasn't run a mile since, I don't know, high school gym class. All right. <laughs> uh-huh. It's okay. Not everybody runs. Uh-huh. That's right. All right. So keeping in mind, I'm a layman. What is it about the Enda shoe that makes it Aside from being made in Kenya, aside from it being carbon neutral, what makes it good for runners? Like, if I'm training for a marathon, why am I best suited to be in a pair of Endas? Um, so, one of the things that when you were talking to the runners was like the most efficient running form is uh, midfoot landing. So, you're kind of like landing on your uh, midfoot or forefoot as opposed to landing on your heel. And so we created a shoe that uh, rewards that strike or basically allows you to kind of like roll over into that strike. Uh, and it's also what you said is important. I do think that runners and people in general, especially now that recreational running is going higher, there needs to be more education about, uh, I feel like we've kind of, the market has been all about, you need this shoe and your problems are fixed. And I'm like, no, not really. You know, like the shoe doesn't make the runner, the runner makes the shoe. So back to the running. So the, the shoes, our, our debut, um, shoe was a road lightweight trainer. It was four millimeter drop, uh, basically, um, a shoe that is close to the ground, not giving you instability. It's also a shoe that, uh, as I said, has a softer pocket under the midfoot area to kind of like allow, allow you to kind of like land and bounce in that area. And then in addition to that, to that we also gave a uh, few cultural flavors in the designs just to to differentiate the shoe and to to tell the stories of Enda, of Kenyan running, and of African culture. I love it. And and with an established science-backed product, Nava, walk me through 2018, 2019, 2020, really the, the past few years. Wow. You know, you never really see it as a, as a long time, but when you mention it like that, I'm like, wow, yeah, that's been many years. <laughs> Uh, but during that time, so we basically invested in the second pair of shoes. Uh, thankfully, we, we kind of like started it in late, like, like early 2018. Uh, it was ready for market, um, end of 2019. And that's when that big thing that we kind of like used to now happened, COVID, um, COVID-19, the pandemic broke out and it actually broke out just when we were about to launch. I remember being very anti, like, oh my gosh, we've just invested so much in this product. Everything is shutting down. What do we need to do? Uh, we went to our advisory board and I, I still remember one of them who's basically an industry veteran saying, you know what? Every time there's a crisis, running always picks up, like, chat me. <laughs> it always picks up because when people start to focus on themselves, like when there's a crisis, there's a tendency to focus on self. And when you're focusing on self, you, there's a tendency to also look at health and well-being. And so he was like, if I were you, I would make sure everything is in the warehouse, like everything is ready to go, you know, like just be prepared because it's going to be a good season for running. Uh, on the other hand, we did have some friends who were in other businesses and they were like, you should cut all your spending, like, 
you know like downsize immediately let go of employees like just hunker down so we had two very conflicting messages but i i think we were like okay let's let's work with the people who've been in this industry for a long time have seen the trends and have been like they've weathered the storm so i take it you listen to that first voice to go all in exactly we listen to that voice and so we we tried to make sure that our product was at the warehouse, that the everything on the website was working right. And uh, true to their prediction, the running industry really saw a great boom uh, during the pandemic. It still is being a boom. And we were able to benefit from that. We also benefited from the social justice movement that was going on in the US. It uh, had a ripple effect on us. Also because we were selling mainly in the US and there aren't that many um, black-owned businesses in the category that we are in. And so we, we basically were able to be spotlighted in different places, and that also helped bump sales. That's so great to hear. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned you're selling a lot to the states. Do you have a geographical breakdown of sorts of where your customers are? Yeah, I'd say we are about um, 85%. Let me just say 80 because Europe is growing. Uh, 80 US, 15 uh, Europe, and five in Kenya. And even the Kenya one is growing as well. Okay, and what does a typical Enda shoe wearer look like? A runner? Someone part of the African diaspora? Someone climate conscious? All the above? Yeah, we, it's a mix, to be honest. We have people who are runners and who, you know, like really uh, support the idea of a Kenyan running shoe and, that, and the fact that Kenya, that Enda is a great running shoe we have we went out of our way to make sure we got like reviews so that it's not just us saying it but there's like independent third parties that people can can see how they test the shoe um and then we also have we we have everyone let me just say we have the people who are uh, ethical consumers in the sense of people who care about who's making their product where it's coming from or where their value where the dollar value of their money goes uh we have people who are you know like the diaspora or people who have been to Africa, or like we, we, we have a mix of everyone, I have to say. All right, cool. So, so let's assume I order a pair of Endas. Now, I know it's proudly made in Kenya. Nava, walk me through that manufacturing process that happens before I receive my shoes. So we basically have to, we still get some parts from China, just because there are certain processes that will take years for them to kind of like exist here. And so we bring in the parts, we take them to outsource a factory at the coast of Kenya. We do the assembly there, then the shoes are shipped. Uh, the ones that are coming to Kenya are sent to the office here. The ones that are going to the U.S. are sent to a third-party logistics company. So they sit in the U.S. We are hoping to do that in Europe this year to make it easier for the customers in Europe. But so now it goes to the warehouse and then um, a customer wanting to buy will purchase. We are mostly a D2C company, direct to consumer. We'll purchase online. The order goes, uh, of course, it gets reflected here. It goes to the warehouse as well. And then the warehouse does the dispatch to the customer. Are you only D2C or are you also in some brick and mortar retailers? We are in brick and mortar, though mostly in Europe. Uh, in Europe, we started more B2B. In the US, we are more D2C. So we're trying to kind of like match those two this year uh, in terms of balancing. Uh, because the beauty of B2B is that you get customers to go somewhere where they can touch the product and feel it and do all, or like, you know, like have the experience of the product. Whereas D2C is more um, experiential only on the website. Um, but Again, as I said, we started off as a Kickstarter company, so that made us inherently D2C from the beginning, but we are trying to divest from that and balance the portfolio. All right. And, and Nava, when I order my pair of Endas after this, this interview, what's a pair going to cost me? Um, the lightweight trainer was costing 100 We just raised our prices um, to 115 for the lightweight trainer and the day distance trainer and the trail shoe are going for 130 um, I, you know, like as a person who's always like um, trying to make sure that we are giving the best to our customers, I don't like the idea of price hikes. But then again, if you kind of like see what's going on around the world, um, there's just a crazy global supply chain problem and we are not immune from that. So we, we had to raise our prices recently. Um, but that's that's the, the retail price. Or someone can just check on our website. Okay, and sales, can you walk me through numbers today? 
So I can't really go like direct into the numbers, but I'd say we have been experiencing triple digit growth since 2019. So yeah, the growth has been good and um, I, I hope it stays that way because the vision is so big. As I mentioned, like we want to sponsor athletes, we want to create places where people can train and they don't have to like go to far places to be able to get good quality equipment. So that's, that's the goal. Those are amazing goals. I, I can see it now. The the Ender Runners facility of Kenya. I, I can't wait. I can't wait either. I bet. And and how about athletes? Are you guys sponsoring Kenyan runners or some of Kenya's athletic stars? Uh, two different things. So regular the, the athletes who actually train and run for the national team or in the in the like more sophisticated teams. Um, I would say majority of the good ones are sponsored by other brands and it's not a bad thing. We don't mind because we understand that there's only a certain amount of time they need to be able to capitalize on their ability to run races and win money. Um, but what we are also doing as a brand is working with younger up and coming athletes, um, athletes who have a lot to prove, who want to, you know, kind of like giving them a different model and saying, um, what if we can help you? We not only work together from a sponsorship and sponsored person perspective, but what if we actually help you, for example, grow your social media, like, like create the model where as an athlete, you know, like they look at other athletes around the world and they're like, wow, like they're able to make money from other things other than being an athlete while here it feels very limited to do so. So it's more, I feel like the younger generation understands that and the younger generation is also up and coming. So names you probably haven't heard, but you will be hearing very soon. Any and the athletes that we may know about already? Uh, yeah, like I'd say the former Detroit Marathon champion, Joanne Chirop Massa was uh, wearing our shoes, like she's an under athlete. Um, our other athletes have won a, a couple of races in Hong Kong. We're now trying to get them into the major, major races, but I think their, their performance is really good, uh, considering where they're coming from. And yeah, we hope that we'll be able to help them get there. But also something I mentioned to the athletes that it's not just focused on performance on track. They can also have to be comfortable enough to, to also like allow their personalities to come through and amass like a following or something like that so that they can also add uh like ask for more value okay now, now i'm on the end of website now and i'm checking out the men's shoes they're sick i mean look at that flamingo one i, I want to get a pair myself now as i told you i ain't a runner huh i mean really by any means but yeah it's, i'd still wear a pair kind of leisurely which begs my question with the Lululemons of the world, is the brand going athleisure too? It is. And it's something that has grown with the more customers who come to find out, uh, out about us. And it's interesting that you say, I can't run or I don't run. I always feel like that's a caveat for everybody who doesn't run and they feel so good. Like, well, I don't run, but I do everything. And I'm like, the culture now is like people kind of like wear sneakers. Uh, it's like a day-to-day thing whether or not you're going to exercise or you're going to run or, or do anything like that and so that's also where we see the brand gravitating to uh in as much as we were making it technically like from a running perspective we wanted a shoe from kenya to have like the best features of a running shoe but we have also realized from observing our customers that they use it for different things you know for hanging out for a shift at the hospital for you know and so i feel like the brand is already evolving even as we are like i want the brand to be ahead but even at this particular point we feel the brand the customers are taking the brand also towards an athleisure direction and we don't mind that at all because i do think the the values of run kenyan is what we want to share with everybody which is more about it's not where you come from it's what you do and like how consistent you are at doing it uh, a little boy from a little village can be a world champion. So those are the ethos that I want the brand to be about. And I feel like those ethos expand outside of running into day-to-day life. Yeah, expanding into day-to-day life. Nava, I'm going to say it, the buzzword that is lifestyle. You want Enda to be not just a runner's brand, but a lifestyle brand. Exactly. That's the goal. So Enda pants, shorts, underwear coming soon? 
Yeah, it's in the pipeline. I think one of the things that we were trying to do is uh, we want to be like an African brand or the African brand or the brand that comes from Africa. And one of the things we were really trying to do is to establish a local supply chain. Um, and that supply chain not necessarily in Kenya, but in Africa, like let's, let's grow and let's grow others with us. Uh, the challenge though has been like, um, you know, just similar to the run issue, there's still some infrastructure that needs to be done. Uh, but at the other end also, Africa does produce a lot of clothes for export for a lot of the big brands, um, Levi's, um, you know, there's like a bunch of really huge names, like making clothes, like not too far from where I am. But the challenge from that is that the MOQs, minimum order quantity they give you is insane, you know, like for, for business that's growing. So there's that bit where you either need to have lots of money to invest in the, to kind of like have access to the really, really good factories, or then you have to kind of like settle in the middle where you have to do a lot of upskilling and all that to, to be able to get the quality of stuff you want. Uh, you know, it, it's such a catch 22, right? I mean, you want to manufacture every part of the end of shoe in Kenya or at least Pan-Africa. Mm-hmm. But to do that, you either need lots of injected capital to meet MOQ requirements or more free cash flow from your business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to get that, you need strong fundamentals driven by cutting costs, which, of course, you can only do by importing some parts from abroad. In this case, China. That's so frustrating. Exactly. You have summarized it so well, but that's, that's it. But also, I'm just like, the, I want the end consumer to understand what we are trying to build and that there's going to be different ways of getting there, but that the vision and the promised land, quote unquote, remains the same. Nava, as we wrap up, for the young Kenyan entrepreneur or runner listening to you now, what's your message to him or her? Do not suffer alone. Find your tribe. Find the people who have either done it or have done something similar to it or have seen it or can't believe it, you know, like, but just find the people who will guide you because I feel like sometimes the feeling to feel alone and when you're trying to do something that, you know, people even find hard to believe, they're like, why are you doing this, you know? But if you find people to work with you, the journey is so much easier and so much faster and you're also tapping into their networks. That's one of the things I've realized that, the more the people you have around you, the more the networks you can tap. They can tap into their network. Their networks can tap into their network. So don't don't do it alone. It is hard to get trust that much, I know, but it's much harder to do things when you're trying to do it alone. Find find your tribe. Wow, what a way to end! That was Navalayo Osembo Ambati from Enda, not from Silicon Valley, but from Kenya. New episodes of the podcast are released every other week, so be sure to subscribe to, share, and rate review Not From Silicon Valley on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.